us today. Let me say a prayer for us. Dear Father, we are so thankful for this day. We are thankful that you are a God that we know and celebrate. We are thankful, Father, for the joy of Sunday morning where Jesus Christ rose again. Would our hearts be filled with awe in you today? Would we walk away this morning knowing how truly great, wonderful, and good that you are? Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1930, the economist, anybody ever take a macroeconomics class? Well, his name is John Maynard Keynes. He was real influential in the world of macroeconomics and business. Well, he wrote a, a, an essay, and he titled it Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. So this is 1930. So he was looking out into the future. So in his grandkids' time, ours, he basically predicted that we would scarcely have to work because technology would have advanced so much that we'd really only need to have about a 15-hour work week. So the idea was that we would be so productive, we'd work Monday and Tuesday and have a five-day weekend. Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> that all the machines and the technology and the new ideas, they would just produce more and we would decide to work less. Now it's interesting because Keynes never had children. So yeah, NPR did an interview with what his sister's grandkids were doing today. And it came out a couple years ago, none of them are shockingly working a 15 hour work week. Surprise, I know. And interestingly, Keynes himself, they talked about it. They considered that he worked himself to death and his heart literally just gave out. But it taps into this idea. It's something that we all want to believe, right? Like history is progressive and it just keeps getting better, right? And the advances and things are just going to get better from here. Greater safety, greater freedom, greater productivity. With reason and science, we have all these possibilities to create a better future, all these resources that we need. It's part of the American dream, right? Our kids' generation is going to have it better than we had it that somehow what's happening next is going to be better off from them. And it pops up throughout generations, right? We go through a hard time, and then the world seems like, okay, it's got to get better from here. Or a financial crisis happens, and we start hoping for things to change, or a great war, and then they piece things back together. But it's interesting because... If you study history at all, history isn't progressive. History's messy. <laughs> history goes like this. In fact, recently when asked, 50% of people didn't think their kids were going to grow up in a better world than they did. We look out at the world and say, we survived a pandemic, right? It was crazy. It was a mess. But people are still struggling, and the economy is still struggling, and the health of our world is struggling. A research study was done, and they asked people, what do you think the world's going to be like in 2050? Most people predicted a weaker economy, a growing income divide, a degraded environment, and a broken political system. Interestingly enough, this study was done in 2019. <laughs> and just here we are four years later feeling these tensions, saying who's going to make it right? Who's going to fix the huge problems that we're facing? If history just keeps getting better and it's this upward trajectory, why is there so much anger and discontentment and depression and drug abuse and loneliness? The question becomes, if the world doesn't feel like it's getting better, where do we find hope? Who could make all of this mess right? Or maybe you don't need to take a survey or, or read a research paper. Closer to home feels more of a struggle struggle with your friends or your family, 
struggle with health or loss or fear, struggle with finances or feeling like you're not going to be able to provide for your kids or create a better future for your family, struggles with anxiety, depression, addiction, wondering how could it ever change or when is it going to get better. In a book about hope, Ray Johnston said that when hope disappears, what's left is discouragement and it rules with a heavy hand said when people lose hope, they lose that ability they have to dream for a better future. Despair replaces joy, fear replaces faith, anxiety replaces prayer, and insecurity replaces confidence. He says tomorrow's dreams are replaced by nightmares. So if it feels like discouragement is heavy and hope is absent, what do we do? Where do we turn in moments like this? And I think it's such a beautiful time exactly where we are today to remember why Easter gives us hope. Not just for this time, not just for this generation of problems, but for all people of all times. But I want to anchor our hope differently. Usually when we use that word hope, there's some kind of uncertainty to it, right? Like, I hope things get better. (laughs) I hope that it works out. I, I hope that it's true. I hope that it happens, right? There's a little bit of hesitancy or uncertainty when we use the word hope. But the language of God and hope is so much different. This language of hope is a life-shaping certainty that something hasn't happened yet, but we know that it will. When we talk about hope, that's the language of hope that we use. And Easter is more than just a lovely time of year or another date on the calendar for a holiday. It's a reminder of this hope, this incredible life-shaping certainty that we have in Jesus Christ. That even though it feels like on Friday darkness won and on Saturday the world goes quiet, Sunday reminds us God isn't done yet. And I heard this brilliant idea, life only has meaning in any circumstances if we have a hope that neither suffering, circumstances, or death itself cannot destroy. And I want to remind us today why we find that hope in Jesus Christ. We're going to do it looking at the Gospel of John. This is what John tells us in chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. I love John so much when he writes about the one disciple Jesus loved. He's talking about himself. <laughs> like, if I got to write a letter, I'd be like, yeah, that one guy Jesus loved a lot, right? That's what he does. Hey, Jesus had a favorite. It was me. I don't know. All right. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple, they started for the tomb, both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and believed, though they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were saying, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. 
They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. She told them what he had said, these things to her. All right, I want to give us a couple of reasons why Easter is shocking. No matter how many times we talk about Jesus rising from the dead and the joy and the hope of Easter, there really is some surprisingly shocking things that happen. The first one is this. It's kind of more ironic. There's nobody waiting at the tomb expecting Jesus. Now, multiple times Jesus had told his friends and disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and the rulers of the people. I'm going to be beaten and mocked, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He told them multiple times, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. But on the third day, nobody says, hey, let's go, let's go check out and see. Maybe Jesus was telling the truth, right? Like, maybe let's just go look at the tomb and see what happens. Nobody's waiting at the entrance saying, okay. Any minute now, Jesus is going to come out. Nobody really understood it, and nobody believed. In fact, his followers were hiding, afraid of what might come next, afraid that the same people who had killed Jesus would come for them. Even the women who go to the tomb are just going to care for their friend's broken body. They're just bringing spices and linens to wrap him and cover him and take care of the dead body of their friend. Now, if you were writing a story, think about this. We've talked about the truth of the Gospels before. If you were writing a story that you wanted to become legend to really add validity to the first leaders of the church, right? Like, you're controlling the story and you want people to look best, right? Wouldn't you say, like, let me tell you how incredible and courageous the first leaders of the church were. Man, they, they couldn't be towed. They weren't discouraged. They were so strong. They never falters. They always believed. But that's not what any of the Gospels say. They show us men and women just like us who experienced incredible disappointment and tragedy. So we have to ask the question, one, what changes these from hiding, afraid, terrified people in a room to the leaders that we know they became who started the movement of the New Testament church and Christianity? What changed? What changed from fear of the Roman Empire killing them to standing up to the uh, brutality and persecution that we know they experienced? They saw the risen Christ. They saw their friend come back from the dead, and it changed everything. It's so interesting because John here, when he talks about them going to see, he uses three different forms of the word to see. It's, the ancient languages are so much more vibrant. Like our English language, we have one word, see, <laughs> right? You see. There's way more um, in the Greek here. And what he talks about, there's three different words that he uses. 
So um, the first one is they observed without necessarily understanding. The second is he examined for the purpose of investigation. And the third is finally John perceived with understanding and belief. It's so interesting when we think about this. Mary herself is so overwhelmed by grief. Not only did she have to go through the, the horror of her friend dying, now his body is gone. She thinks it's just insult upon insult, pain upon pain. She can't even care for the remains of her friends. Somebody has taken him. She's so consumed by this grief, she doesn't even recognize Jesus when he's standing there talking to her. And it's the same for us. It's so easy to not really understand. We see the things we see, and we think we see things as they are, and we have this true perception, but we only see things as we are, what we bring into the equation. We get so overcome with the problems of right now that we're trying to work our way through that we can just as easily miss Jesus Christ standing right before us. You know, what if where we are right now isn't because God doesn't love us? What if what we're trying to figure out or heal from isn't because God gave up on us and said, I'm done, figure it out on your own? What if God doesn't actually hate us and isn't trying to punish us? What if the problems and the struggles and whatever it is we're trying to work our way through where we are, what if these are the exact places that Jesus wants to meet us and breathe life back into us. Not so that we will quit, not so that we'll hide away, but that we can stand up and face this life with courage and hope. What if these places that we are in the messiness of life, he doesn't just want to help us, but he wants to grow us, and he wants to open our eyes to see and give us a new vision for seeing him, ourselves, and the world in right ways. Not eyes that have been jaded by hurt. Not eyes that have become cynical and pessimistic, but eyes that have been changed by the hope found in a living, resurrected Christ. Fueled with love, encouraged by grace. What if there really is a God who loves us so much that he sent Jesus Christ into the world on our behalf? That rather than punishing us, he endured the punishment himself. That we might see him and know him. That we might truly come to know just how incredibly loved and valued we are. Here's the second thing that's surprising. Mary is the first person to see the risen Christ. In every one of the Gospels, we're told that women were the first ones there at the tomb to see Jesus risen. Now, John's Gospel focuses more specifically on Mary Magdalene. It, women are mentioned in every part, mourning at a distance in the crucifixion, showing up to care for Jesus' body, the first ones to see Jesus rise again. Now, I, I, this becomes just something that we talk about, but this is why this is such a big deal. Here's why it's shocking. There's a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century, and he had all these arguments and criticisms against Christianity. Our, uh, criticism against Christianity is new, isn't new. There's always been arguments. There's always been criticism. But his arguments, one of his biggest ones about why Christianity can't be true, is that the written accounts of the resurrection were based on the testimony of women. And as he said that everybody agreed with at the time, women were hysterical and couldn't be trusted. 
Their word didn't count for much. They were second-class citizens, looked down on. You couldn't even testify in court. A woman's word was that worthless to people at the time. And people are like, oh, yeah, you're right. You can't count on the woman's word. That is a good argument against Christianity, right? They had no social status and no bearing. So why would every single gospel writer tell us that women were the first ones to see Jesus Christ risen? It wasn't to their benefit. Imagine the pressure they were probably under, like, guys, couldn't you change that part? Like, maybe make it Peter or John or, you know, make it one of the other guys. And they didn't add validity to their claims of what Christ has done other than it actually happened. But I want us to not miss this because it so, shows us something so incredible about the heart of God. In a world where nobody trusted the word of a woman, God trusted his most important word to them. Think about that. In a whole entire culture that said, you have no value, your word counts for nothing, we can't trust it, God said, your voice matters to me. God elevated them and gave them, gave them this beautiful place with his most precious word of what he was accomplishing. Even in our world today, when everybody else says, what is our worth based on? What you can do, what you can produce, who you are, who you know. God looks beyond all of that. says, I've given you my most precious word, Jesus Christ, my one and only son. When God looks at you, he doesn't see what the world sees. He sees a treasure that is loved and valued. Here's another reason that Easter is shocking. Jesus rose from the dead. That, that's not just a nice thing that we tell ourselves or a thing that we say, yay, and encourage ourselves with. He actually did what he said he would do. He actually did what nobody else could do. Nobody comes back from the dead. We've been to the funerals. We've been to funeral after funeral after funeral, and the casket stays closed. The casket goes into the ground, yet Jesus Christ conquered death, the very thing that threatens to conquer us all. Timothy Keller said the fact of the resurrection of Jesus is what makes the gospel story not merely a great experience to read, but a life-changing power. The story of Jesus changes our lives because it's true. And in no way is the gospel story sentimental or escapist. Indeed, the gospel takes evil and loss with the utmost seriousness. Because it says that we cannot save ourselves. Nothing short of the death of the very Son of God can save us. But... The happy ending of the historical resurrection is so enormous that it swallows up even the sorrow of the cross. For those who believe it can henceforth fully face the depth of sorrow and brokenness of life, the gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment, and because it is a true story, it gives us hope because we know life really is like that. You know what he's saying? The Easter isn't just like a nice children's story that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better, right? You know, we read these lovely stories to our kids and stories about how to be strong and how to be brave and how to do the right thing. It's more than just a good story to make us feel better in a messy world. Though it does that, 
It is an incredible true story that happened in time and history that shows us what God does to confront the injustice and pain of our present world. It's what Christ has truly done to bring healing and justice and love to you and I. The truth of the resurrection is that God is prepared to do everything to bring hope and justice into this world, and we see it through what he did in Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Anne Rice is an author. I don't know if anybody's ever read her. She wrote, like, The Interview with the Vampire, Queen of the Damned. They've made all the movies and shows out of it. So she, she's, she writes and she researches. She said every book she's written since 1974 involved historical research. She went through different periods, different times, researched the period, researched the people who lived in that time. And she was driven by this almost obsession, she called it, to write about Jesus and the birth of Christianity. She couldn't understand why Christianity took off the way that it did. Um, so when she did this research, she set out the same way to do a historical research. Now, it's interesting, because if you also research her life, she's had a real tumultuous relationship with faith. She grew up in the church, left the church when she was 18, lost her faith. She rediscovered faith later in her life. And then even later than that, it was not that many years ago, she's famously quoted as saying, I'm quitting Christianity. <laughs> I'm not quitting Christ, but I am quitting Christianity. I can't stand these people anymore. So she had this real tumultuous relationship of faith. But when she set to research Christianity in Christ, here's what she said. Having started with the skeptical critics, those who take their cue from the earliest skeptical New Testament scholars of the Enlightenment, I expected to discover that their arguments would be frighteningly strong and that Christianity was at heart a kind of fraud. I'd have to end up compartmentalizing my mind with faith in one part and truth in another. She went into the research expecting to be proved wrong about anything being true about Christ. She said, what gradually became clear to me is that many of the skeptical arguments, arguments that insisted the Gospels were suspect, for instance, written too late to be eyewitnesses' accounts, that they lacked coherence, they weren't elegant, arguments about Jesus himself were full of conjecture. Some books were no more than assumptions piled upon assumptions. Absurd conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. She said, in sum, the whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got himself crucified and had nothing to do with the founding of Christianity would be horrified by it if he knew. She said that a whole picture which had floated in the circles I'd frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case wasn't made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. She goes on and she talks about the authors that she read and the people that she studied, and she came across N.T. Wright. We talked about N.T. Wright before. He's a bishop, huge New Testament scholar. And she said, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he answers solidly the question that has haunted me all of my life. Christianity achieved what it did, according to N.T. Wright, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It was the fact of the resurrection that sent the apostles out into the world with the force necessary to create Christianity. Nothing else would have done it. Isn't that interesting? She set out on this exploration completely expecting to have all of this scholarship and all of this criticism prove her wrong and find no truth, only to find the exact 
opposite, that it was Jesus Christ's resurrection that changed a group of men and women 2,000 years ago. I mean, we read all about the history and the culture that Christ and his disciples were adults in. You've read about it in history in the Roman Empire. What could change the power of the Roman Empire? They were might at the time. What could start a movement that has moved to every corner of the world, north, south, east, and west? What could change faith, uh, fear into courage, and death into hope? Nothing else than the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, that glory of that empire is gone. Powers have risen and fallen. Governments have changed century after century. They come and they go. But the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ remains. And it affected everybody that knew him. They went out into the world and they talked about what they'd seen and what they'd witnessed. And these followers of Jesus Christ became leaders and champions for the church. They faced fear and death and persecution and public ridicule and shame. No longer were they held back, no longer intimidated, hiding in a room, not conquered, but with courage and faith and dignity and grace because they had seen the risen Jesus Christ. They so believed in the power of what God could do, they would not be stopped. They so believed in Jesus Christ, it was greater than any fear they faced, and the church moved forward, and here we are today. If God could raise Christ from the dead, what couldn't he do? Why do we have hope? Because look at what God can do. Nothing is too hard for him. We have hope that nothing is wasted. What we've been through, what we've seen, what we've overcome, what we're fighting through today, God is at work in all of it for good. We have hope that just as God wasn't done 2,000 years ago, he isn't done today. And he's not given up on us, not on our family, not on our friends, not on our community, and not in this church. God isn't finished his best is yet to come. We have hope in the incredibly good work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said it was finished on the cross, he meant it. He didn't say it's finished and then. He said it's finished. The hardest work that needed to be done is done. The death that needed to happen, he died. The life that needed to be lived, he lived. We don't have to work our way to God. We don't have to prove that we're worth it enough or good enough. Christ already shows that we are. We don't work it, we receive it. We don't earn it, we claim the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. The resurrection shows us we didn't save ourselves and we don't keep ourselves saved. Christ is our advocate right now representing us before the Father. We are forgiven and loved because of him. Not just because of yesterday, not just because of today and tomorrow, but everything in the future that could ever happen. Christ is our advocate representing us to God. Dane Ortland said, the Bible nowhere teaches that once we've been saved and united with Christ, we'll find grievous sins to be a thing of the past. And that's what Christ's advocacy is for, it's God's way of encouraging us not to throw in the towel. 
When you sin, remember your legal standing before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. He rises up and defends your cause based on the merits of his own suffering and death. Your salvation is not merely a matter of a saving formula, but a saving person. When you sin, his strength of resolve rises all the higher. When his brothers and sisters fail and stumble, he advocates on their behalf because it's who he is. Listen, please. He cannot bear to leave us alone to fend for ourselves. That's the hope we have in Jesus Christ. What did, Mary, what did Jesus tell Mary to go and tell the disciples? I'm ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God and your God. You know what he's saying? This hope we have is personal. It's not for some generic idea of humanity, but you and I personally. Not strangers, but family. Not hired employees who have to earn a job, but son and daughters. You don't fire your kids. You fight for them. You advocate for them. You work for them to know that they are loved and redeemed. They're your kids. Because of that, they belong to you. This is what Jesus is saying. You belong to him. He doesn't lose what is his. He doesn't let go of what he claims. He is with us. He's claimed us for his own, and he will never leave us. The solution that we're looking for in every problem that we face is found in Jesus Christ. There's all this talk about history and the right side of history and the wrong side of history. History is made by men and women who make right and wrong choices. We live where we are today, and we own the choices we make because of who we are in Jesus Christ. If we want hope for the future, it's found in us, the men and women who know him, living the life he's called us to live. Death didn't stop Jesus Christ. He came back. And our promise is he's coming again. Our greatest hope for the future our greatest hope for every person that we love and plead with God for is found in Jesus Christ. That's the surprising hope we find at Easter. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. I'm so thankful that we are reminded of the hope we have in you. I'm thankful, Father, that you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I pray that the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ would take root in our hearts today. I pray, Father, that the hope and the courage that we need to do the life you've given us to live, we would be reminded of it daily when we think on Jesus Christ. Thank you that there's nothing too hard for you. Thank you that you are a God who is not finished yet and is still at work in my life and everyone who is here with us today. I pray that we would cling to this hope that we have in you and we would not be discouraged because we know who you are. We know what you can do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.